Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome one of my longtime friends, Sarah M., as the 80th interview in my AA Recovery Interviews podcast series. Sarah's remarkable story begins with a relatively happy childhood in a family with little connection to alcohol. While other addictive behaviors may have been present, Sarah experienced issues with anorexia and bulimia years before her first drink. It manifested into feelings of low self-esteem and negative body image, causing further shame and fear. By the time she found alcohol at age 16, she was able to ease her negative feelings and fit in, but such escape led to problems. With difficulties at home and a stint in college cut short by alcohol, Sarah set off on the road to destruction, adding cocaine and crystal meth to the deadly mix along the way. Fortunately, her exposure to recovery from her eating disorders many years earlier left her with a friend who encouraged Sarah to attend AA. After some fits and starts, she finally made it into the program in 1996. From the start, she worked a program of diligence and meaning. That early anchoring in AA and spiritual connection allowed her to continue to work safely in a bar. She earned enough to pay for her education that extricated her from that same tavern job several years later. As her life was steadily improving as the result of Alcoholics Anonymous, she was faced with her husband's cancer diagnosis just three years into her marriage. For the next three years until he passed away, Sarah worked two jobs and cared for her husband while amazingly finding time to attend AA meetings. She credits those meetings and her selfless service work as her means to survive those difficult years without slipping. Sarah's story points to the insidious nature of the disease of alcoholism, which allows it to find its way into the lives of even those who enjoyed happy childhoods. In Sarah's case, alcoholism did not discriminate. That she was able to survive a booze-soaked and drug-infused lifestyle was most certainly by the grace of God. That she thrives today and enjoys a relatively contented life is directly correlated to her involvement in an active AA program. The women she sponsors find solace and hope in the experience she shares with them, while she, in turn, bolsters her solid program to withstand the ups and downs of long-term sobriety. There's a lot to learn from Sarah M., and I invite you to tune in to this especially poignant episode of AA Recovery Interviews. So please, enjoy the next 60 minutes with my dear friend and AA sister, Sarah M. I'm Sarah, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Howard. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me today. I really appreciate having you here and seeing you in person and being able to do this interview in person. It means a lot. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. You know, what was interesting today, we just got out of the meeting at the clubhouse that we're in right now. And I saw up on the chalkboard in the back where it has birthdays for the month of uh, May, I saw Sarah M. Mm Mm-hmm. And it said 26 years, and it had your anniversary date of, is it May 3rd? 31st. May 31st. So we're coming up on that, aren't yes. we? Yes. <laughs> May 31st of 20, of 1996? Yes, correct. Is that amazing? That's crazy. <laughs> you and I have known each other a long time, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've been in the rooms 
seen each other in the rooms for a long time. I remember yeah. seeing you at the second, were you at Richmond when it was, was. on Richmond? Mm -hmm. That's the old, old club. Yes, that was the old, old Isn't that place. amazing? Yeah, so I'm like one, two, three locations back, I think. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd be sober this long? No, never. It's crazy. <laughs> you got here just in time, I understand. Yeah, um, I was a yet. You were a yet? I was a yet. And, and I hadn't done it yet. Some of the things that I'd heard in, in the meetings when people shared. So I, um, I came in at age 25, and there were a lot of older people in that group. But everybody laughed, mm -hmm. and that attracted me. I wanted to laugh again. I like the laughter, too. And it was always a little bit confusing to me as to why people were laughing in an AA meeting, because I always thought of AA as being a somber you know, down-mooded place, and to walk in and hear people laugh, I was almost indignant about it. How did you feel when you first heard people laugh? I was kind of confused at first, but I liked it, mm -hmm. um, because I hadn't been laughing much in my life before. Mm -hmm. I wanted what they had, and I was, at the point in my life, I was willing to do what was suggested to stay sober. And there are certain suggestions, and just for the listeners, what you're hearing in the background is the aftermath of a meeting, the fellowship after the fellowship. It's almost like a cocktail bar or a cocktail party, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's, that's one of the things that I worked in a bar when I came in. That's right. You were working in a bar when you came in. I was. And so it kind of reminded me of the, we talk about how everybody's so convivial and everybody's so excited about life when you, when you come in. Everybody's happy. Isn't that wonderful? And it's like without the alcohol. That, that really appealed to me because I just didn't know how to do that. I had tried. I had tried many times. So did you continue to be a bartender when you went to your early meetings? Mm -hmm. What was that like? It was really interesting. In what way? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, back in 1996, uh, for people who hadn't been sober for very long, mm -hmm. the internet wasn't really popular just yet. It hadn't come about. Cell mm -hmm. phones weren't extremely popular. Right. So we had pay phones, mm -hmm. and I had a list of numbers of people I could call after 11 p.m., 12 a.m., 2 a.m. from the group. Hmm. People were willing to tell me, okay, you can call me at three in the morning. And I knew I could call that person. So I had a list of numbers and I carried my desire chip with me every night. What was it like having to smell the liquors and see the liquors? Yes. Uh, actually, I didn't want it. And I would drink juice or club soda. Mm -hmm. I did what was, was suggested. Um, so I always had a, a glass or a bottle of water, something nearby. Mm -hmm. And if someone offered to buy me a drink, I'd say, I'm not drinking alcohol right now at this moment, but I'll have this club soda with you. Do you remember when you were bartending, do you ever recall a time at which you saw somebody either sitting at the bar or maybe at one of the tables that you were serving mm -hmm. that was in a group and was asked if they wanted a drink and they said no? Do you recall what the responses were around the table or by the bar whenever people said no to a drink? Sometimes people go, are you sure? Maybe just a beer or wine. Or sometimes people will just say, okay, you know, because back then there was more talk about designated drivers because DWIs were still pretty big. You know, they were just starting around that time. Between 1991 and 98, 99, they were really starting to crack down harder on DWIs. Hmm. So somebody could be the designated driver and get out of having to drink when in reality they're an alcoholic trying to stay sober in a place that they've got a good reason for being there and maybe they're in a fit spiritual condition so it's okay for them to be there. Yeah. The reason I was asking was because I remember I never felt quite comfortable hanging out with people who didn't drink. Yeah. What was that like for you? 
Um, when I was drinking, I would just say, uh, more for me, more for me. That's good. That's fine. There's more for me. But when I got sober, it was interesting because since it was a job for me, mm-hmm. I was there to work, right? And even though we were allowed to imbibe at the bar, it wasn't encouraged because you have to do till, you have to do inventory, you have to, you better cut, your numbers still better come out right. So if you've had a little too much and your numbers don't come out right, you might get reprimanded, you might get in trouble. But I was never completely uncomfortable, I guess. I mean, if you, if I got one of the drinkers that was, you know, really doing the shots and acting really dumb, mm-hmm. reminding me of what I may have done myself uh, back in the day, then it kind of bothered me a little bit. And I would talk to my sponsor about it and she'd go, well, maybe it's reminding you of behavior that you did. Mm. Or so I would start thinking about it like that. I started to change my perspective about how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. I used to play a game too. Like if, you know, groups of people came in, like I could pick out which one was the alcoholic in the group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's handy. So me and some other people would be like, okay, I think it's him. No, it's her. You know, or <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of would pass the time when it was, you know, sometimes slow. It was a great learning experience, believe it or not. Once I got used to being around people who could drink, uh, the funny thing is, is I think I had about seven years sober when I left working in the bar. And I used the money I made working in the bar to become a Pilates instructor and a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. That paid for all my certifications. And so I was actually nervous about leaving working in the bar because I could confront my demons right there on a daily basis on a daily basis and come out victorious right and i would always pray to god you know just give me the strength guide me um before i would go in it never occurred to me i could still do that when i left leaving the bar but i was nervous about you know what do i do when i'm out there and i don't have to be confronted with people i was so used to it when you were during that seven-year period where you'd just gotten sober and you're moving forward with your program and you're staying sober for up to seven years Do you recall any times within that seven-year period where you felt like your sobriety was in jeopardy? I always left before that. I was really good about, if I need to get the heck out of Dodge, I leave now. And I told the managers that I was in the program when I got sober, and I had a really good deal with them because I rarely caused a problem. Hmm. Even when I was drinking, I didn't really cause problems. So they were incredibly supportive because I was a hard worker. So they, they never gave me any problems. And it was very rare that I would just have to leave because it wasn't good. And typically, if I was listening to my intuition, mm-hmm. if it wasn't good, I just wouldn't go in. I would call in and ask someone to, to cover my shift. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that's what I did. So in a time of trouble or personal difficulty, angst, or, or something that the response back when we're active is to go get blitzed, you would just pull away from the environment that would make it easy to do that? Yeah. That's interesting. When did you first hear about AA? So I learned about AA when I was about 16. Mm -hmm. I had just started drinking about then, but I was entered into a uh, recovery center for eating disorders, actually, Mm -hmm. for anorexia and bulimia, uh, more on the binge and purge side. And There was someone in there, and that person eventually saved my life by just telling me this one tidbit of information. Is, Sarah, you will have an addictive personality if you have this issue. You have to remember, you will try other things, and you can become addicted to them. Mm. You need to be on the watch. Alcohol and drugs. And not even nine years later, I was entering into AA because she told me that. I'm very grateful for that person. I don't even remember who it was. I just remember the person telling me that. 
and that I needed to be on the lookout. And it was always kind of in the back of my mind, especially towards the end of the time that I drank and used. So, and I used and drank a lot. I did a lot of those substances because I wanted to change the uh-huh. way I felt. I didn't feel comfortable in my skin, and I definitely didn't feel comfortable about me, like my body. Like I had a lot of body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my way of trying to calm the brain down. Um, it wasn't until I came into the rooms of AA that I found out I was a binge drinker, mm-hmm. that uh, low self-esteem, I had control issues. I learned all this stuff once I sobered up and started doing the steps that I had all the isms. I just hadn't become full-blown alcoholic and drug addict yet. Yet. And so... I felt like I was saved a lot of time and trouble and maybe even money with defense lawyers or (laughs) criminal lawyers that you can still come in. And I remember asking someone, I don't know if you remember him from from the Richmond location, Nick C. He used to run a big book study Mm -hmm. and a great knowledgeable guy. And he had pointed me in the direction of my first sponsor. And I said, well, I don't have all of the, uh, the stories that people have in these rooms. Like, I didn't do this. I didn't go to jail for that. I didn't do this. And he goes, well, you can go back out there and drink and go get those stories. And I thought, well, no, no, we're good. Yeah. I'm here. I'll stay here. I'm, I'm okay. I'll just be boring. I remember that kind of hard-edged thing of people saying, well, if you're not done, then go back out. And almost encouraging them. I've yes. known people who, says, who say, it says right here in the big book that I can drink. Well, yeah, it says that, but you've taken that out of context. What was childhood like for you? And, and in what way did your childhood experience inform later entrees into addiction? I grew up in a family of five. I have two, a brother and a sister. I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a middle, middle-class family. Um, I went to a high school on the northwest side of Houston, Texas. And what, what was Houston then is now Cypress, Texas, I believe, with the expansion yeah. of the city. But we lived in that side of town. And I remember growing up thinking, I just didn't belong, even in that family. Like, I felt different. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that feeling different, it was in my my social interactions with other kids. Um, and my mom used to joke that and it's probably true that when my brother was born, I really didn't want to share all the attention. Mm-hmm. You know, I had like two and a half years of being an only child. Why do we need another one here? <laughs> What's going on, people? <laughs> so, you know, and by the time my sister was born, she was about six years younger than me. Mm-hmm. I was having to share a lot more of attention. You're two and a half years old. Your mother's getting ready to have another baby. Mm-hmm. And so you're no longer going to be the center of attention. Yep. So my inner child probably didn't like that so much, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my inner child, my child. So I don't know. I didn't grow up feeling neglected. My parents did not drink. I mean, I was spoiled. I had everything I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't always get what we wanted because we were middle, middle class. So therefore, we weren't spoiled like some of the other kids that you know, their parent, but I mean, my parents had, my dad had a good job. My mom stayed at home. This was back then where there were more stay at home parents oh, yeah. uh, and families back in the eighties. So your folks stayed together the whole time. They're still married. They're still married. They're wow. Married that's great. 54 years. That's amazing. So, and I see what they have. They have an amazing relationship. That's really cool. It's very cool to see, you know, they are each other's best friend. 
What kind of families did they come out of? Is there a history of any kind of addiction or alcoholism on either side? So I had asked my parents later when I had 90 days sober and I revealed to them that I was in the program. Mm -hmm. And I had said, is there any family history? And all they could tell me, because they both grew up in the South also, which no one really talks about that kind of stuff, I guess. No one talks about health issues. It wasn't as open back then. And they did say that my grandfather on my dad's side of the family um, was always seen with a, a highball or a, or a cocktail drink, but never seen drunk. So Interesting. But I don't know. I do believe on my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family, there's a lot of obesity and overeating. I feel like there's just a lot of isms there. And that's what I looked at it as. Um, not everybody wants to talk about their feelings. So it's easier to stuff them, I guess. <laughs> you know, I've always, I've always been baffled. People who don't go through the kind of childhood that I had, which was miserable, but we end up in AA just the same. When you go and try and tie everything back to a miserable childhood, that may seem reasonable until you meet somebody who hasn't had a miserable childhood. How would you rate your overall childhood? Well, my parents were very, um, my overall childhood, I would say, was like an 8 out of 10. I mean, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were heavily involved in church. I grew up in church from age 3 till 17. I was in like the church choir. We did handbells. We were all very involved in church. As I got older, I wasn't as impressed with organized religion. Mm -hmm. I kind of rebelled a little bit about that. But I had worked out a deal with my parents later by the time I was in high, senior in high school, two Sundays a month. Okay, so kind of cutting down a little bit. Right. I get and that, it. And by the time I was in college, I didn't go at all. Um, I tried a couple of times. I just didn't relate. I didn't feel that connection with God. I didn't feel that kind of connection that I found in AA. So you had this 8 out of 10 childhood. You, you mentioned earlier that you hadn't had a drink until you were 16. How did that occur, and, and what was your first drinking experience or your first drinking experience is like? So I was 16 and a friend of the family at our church was getting married and they asked me to be like an acolyte in the wedding to light the candles before the bride and the groom walked up. And this was a family we were very close. Mm -hmm. So of course at the reception, they're serving champagne and I'm like, dad, dad, can I have a glass of champagne? And he said, okay, you can have one, and it like echoed, one, 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 one glass, right? So being the clever future alcoholic that I was going to be, it occurred to me that if the glass was never empty, it was still one, <laughs> one, one glass. So I get halfway down and somebody was walking around with a bottle. Sure, I'll take a little more. Technically, it's one glass. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You only had one glass. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty sauced. <laughs> Were you really? <laughs> and it was champagne, and I'd really had no other experience with alcohol, and it was a really bad hangover the next day. What was the experience when you were while you were drinking? Giddy, giddy, giggly. I was having fun. I was joining everybody else. I felt a part of. I didn't feel apart from. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel so secluded, I guess. But when I was hungover the next day, I felt very, very alone. So you had this hangover after your first time drunk. Did it make you want to stay away, or was the giddiness and the inclusiveness of your experience while drinking making you move towards another drink? I wouldn't say I swore it off. I just was like, it was a, a, a side effect of what happened with the giddiness. Mm. So I was very eager to go back and try again. 
So some parties, you know, by my junior and senior year, I uh, wrestled with Jim Bean, not too fond of that stuff. I had no tolerance for alcohol from the very beginning. In what way? Um, Just one or two drinks. I was really, really drunk. I wonder now later in my life, because I have insulin resistance, I wonder if it was the sugar factor, like the fermentation or something. But by the time I came into the rooms, I thought it was the sugar and alcohol I had a problem with. Yeah. Which was interesting. That was the way I thought it through when I was coming in the room, which is kind of funny. So once you had that drink at 16, then your junior and your senior year were... Drinking. Drinking. Smoking pot. I added on some pot into that. What do you think about pot? I liked it. It slowed me down. It slowed down my monkey mind. With the eating disorders and the anxiety in my brain, my mind, the constant chatter in my mind, Mm -hmm. the pot quelled that. But I didn't necessarily like the taste of it. I wasn't a big fan of that. So uh, alcohol was a quicker, easier way to get a hold of it, too, through other friends that were of age. I think by then you had to be 21 to buy, to purchase alcohol by then because it was like 1989. Right. Marijuana was much more accessible to younger people than was alcohol Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. I did both. At one point, I was just doing grass and not drinking, Mm -hmm. convinced that that was my drug of choice. But then I also realized that whatever edge I needed taken off, I could count on the alcohol to do that. And so I I generally used together. Mm -hmm. Very, very seldom was I doing one without the other. Were you doing them simultaneously as well? I couldn't. I would get too messed up, Mm. and I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. So um, I would either do one or the other, typically. But I had my first blackout, I think at 17, on whiskey, and I didn't remember much. That was kind of scary. Did that get a pattern going for you of uh, blackout drinking, or, or was that occasional? That was occasional. And I was a binger. Uh, I was, you know, I could go months without drinking alcohol Mm. for, you know, two or three. But my mindset during that time was like I was barely hanging on, if that makes any sense. I was white knuckling life. Until your next drink. Until the next time I would blow off steam, I thought, by just having a few drinks. Did you ever give any thought to why you were feeling that way? Did you ever connect the dots between the craving for alcohol and the way you were feeling? Not at that time. Later on towards the end, yes, I started to see the pattern, you know, and I I would voice things to myself like I need a drink or I need cocaine Hmm. rather than I want a drink or I want cocaine. I could still moderately drink up until about 1993, 94 Mm -hmm. when I wanted to. It was all bets are off or final exams were done. Mm -hmm. Let's go have fun. You're mentioning a couple things here that I'm curious about. First was cocaine and the second Mm -hmm. was post high school. What was your college experience like? (laughs) Well, um, I went to University of Texas, San Antonio. So I was in a college in San Antonio that, um, and I really liked it a lot there. And I loved San Antonio. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of festivals there. There's many opportunities (laughs) to drink and eat and wander around. Out in the open. (laughs) Um, So when I graduated high school, I was very ready to get out of the house. My parents were very authoritative. And looking back now as an adult, I can understand why they would have been very authoritative my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. But let's just say they were pretty eager for me to get out of the house. And I was pretty ready to get out of the house. Right. It was kind of a mutual feeling. When I was there... 
I was staying in the dorms at the university, and they had some really great dorms. And um, there was one night I was uh, drinking, and um, there was an assault. I was assaulted by somebody. Oh, no. By somebody you were drinking with? Yes. It was just a, an acquaintance. I think okay. back then they would refer to it as acquaintance rape. And it was a violent, it was a particularly violent Ooh. one. I was fighting, I was fighting, mm. even though I'd been drinking. And I had a really hard time. Um, physically, I was injured for days. I didn't go get help. I was too scared. I was too ashamed. Mm. I thought it was my fault. And that is when the drinking escalated. It put me on fast forward. And in some mm. ways, you know, I'm kind of glad <laughs> in some ways because it fast forwarded me, I felt like. And that's when I started working in the bar later on. Hmm. I did not finish my four-year degree. I was going to be an exercise science major. So, and I wanted to be a physical therapist at that time. So if you fast forward in the future and I become a Pilates instructor, I'm kind of like the, what I do in Pilates is kind of the, uh, I guess the transition from physical therapy to fitness. So it's kind of a blending of both. There's a lot of corrective exercise involved, but also there can be a lot of fitness. And try and ease people out of the physical therapy yeah. into mm -hmm. a lifetime of exercise. It's a great type of method in addition to uh, yoga for functional aging. Hmm. It helps with mobility, flexibility, stretching. So you were doing that at the time. This traumatic experience, date rape or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. you were drinking to get through that, to quell the feelings of that. Would you call it PTSD, what you experienced? Absolutely, I yeah. would. I would absolutely call it PTSD. Uh -huh. I actually drank for, for the nightmares. Mm. And I felt so bad about myself. And then I think I was on my second semester of my freshman mm. year at the university, and I discovered from a friend at the bar where I worked, uh, cocaine and crystal meth. Mm. And so for someone who has a background of always wanting to be thinner, always wanting to look better, this was fantastic. Yeah, especially the crystal meth, huh? Oh yeah, you could you know, stay up for days. And not have to eat. Not have to eat, you wouldn't get hungry. So that was a nice combination. That's when my grades really started to go downhill. So I was academically dismissed. Uh -huh. I ended up staying in San Antonio. And not too long after that had happened, I got my one and only DWI. And I had been drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. And I spent the night at Bear County Jail in San Antonio. And uh, that was definitely an experience. That was a very sobering experience when all this stuff wore off. I'll bet. And they put me in the room with another woman who knew the menu, which concerned me. Because if she knew the menu, she'd been there a while. <laughs> but she seemed to know the whole system. Like, oh, you're getting out if they put you in here with me. And the irony was the bail bondsman was one of my clients when I was bartending. <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds of that? <laughs> so did they go easier on you because of that? So I was 20 years old by the time that happened. I was under the influence only under alcohol. And I was underage since I was 20. And at the time, they were starting to really start get harder on people, but I didn't have enough money and I didn't want to call my parents. I didn't want to ask for help. And um, I still thought I was a moderate drinker. I hadn't drank in a while and I was on a binge mm. and we were having a drinking game at my house. And then I left to go get some more water or more things to eat. And that's when I got pulled over. Uh -huh. So I used the, the city attorney and basically I just pleaded no contest and I got three years probation. I had to do uh, an alcohol class uh -huh. or go to, or I had to let my license be suspended. And they gave me a written test also to see what type of a drinker I was. And I came back a moderate drinker. And I wasn't completely 
honest right, when I answered sure. the questions. But it seemed pretty easy to sound like I was a moderate drinker. But I wasn't a daily drinker by any means at, you know, at all. So you were able to keep your license? Well, I lost that because I didn't go to the class. Oh. But I, I could not leave Bear County. So it was very, I had to get permission to go to Thanksgiving to my parents' house or whatever. So towards, I think, this, the second year of probation, I had to, I had to ask uh, for permission from Bear County to leave to go to the parents' house. And I had to tell them the whole situation. Like, I'm going to stay with my parents. I'm driving there. I'm not going to be drinking. Did the folks know about you getting arrested and being under probation? So after about the second year, I finally came forward and told them. What was their response? They were just like, why didn't you tell us? I can't believe this. And are you still drinking? You know, and of course I lied. No, I'm not. I'm not drinking that much or whatever. I was still working in a bar. So what did you attribute that DUI to? Was that just bad luck or it was just your turn to get caught? How did you think about that? I was pretty ashamed of it, actually. I was. I was pretty embarrassed, not because I wanted to see how other people felt. I knew I wasn't on a good path. Deep down, I knew not a good path. Yeah. And, um, and I had even asked my parents if I could come back home. But at the time, I was staying in, a, in an apartment that was on my dad's credit. And they were like, you have to wait till the end of the lease before you can come back. And so I had to sit it out and wait it out. But by that time, um, I think I moved into another apartment and decided that I would stay in San Antonio just a little bit longer. So you were in San Antonio for how many years total? Uh, I was about five years. Yeah. So you finished your probation there. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. When you knew you would lose your license if you didn't go to the class, why didn't you go to the class? Oh, I still wanted to work at the bar at night. I didn't want to miss any time and, and money and parties. So what'd you do without a license all that time? I still drove. You still drove. You just never got pulled over. Mm -hmm. I'm doing all of these behaviors. Like if you talk to a person today and, and they tell you they're doing this, you're thinking, this is crazy. Why mm -hmm. are you doing that? Why don't you just do that? If I had just taken that class, my license would have been intact. But instead, it was suspended for nine months. So this five-year period is taking us up to how, how long before you're getting sober? I got sober in 96. I think I was back at my parents by 93, 94, back in Houston. I stayed with them for about a year. Uh -huh. And I went back to school because I wanted to finish. And, um, but my drinking really escalated a little bit then. I went back to working in a bar. Uh-huh. Of course, I immediately found someone who had a cocaine connection, and a bunch of us would go after work from the bar and play poker because we needed downtime from being up all night long, right? Yeah. So we would play poker and 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 do those types of things, and um, you know, drink and do drugs and all that stuff. And I'd get home around four or five in the morning, and so my parents politely asked me to leave because they didn't want me coming and going at that time of the day in their house. So and I agreed with them that I need to get my own place, so I did. And um, that's when things really started to escalate a little bit more again. At that time, my brother also was having, my younger brother was having some issues as well. Oh, wow. My sister never really presented, but my brother did too. And he was having uh, issues and tried to commit suicide. And I felt so powerless about that. that I drank so much, I passed out. And someone from the bar took me to their house to take care of me that I really didn't know that well. But she was afraid other people were going to try to hurt me while I was passed out. So in part, of, in some ways I was freaked out, but I was very grateful that she took, like that, that was an angel that night because I'd already been through enough <laughs> as far as I was concerned.
and you were still binge drinking. Mm-hmm. You were on your own then for a while? Yes. In your own apartment? Yes. And there was numerous times that I would finish off the rest of the drugs I had by myself, or I would come home from hanging out with people from work, and I would just look in the mirror and go, why are you doing this to yourself? Mm. Why are you doing this? And I would start crying. I, I knew this wasn't a good path for me. It was fun, but then it wasn't anymore. Like It, it turned against me what I thought was a good coping mechanism mm. or something that was social. And then it was... There were times that I almost overdosed, I believe. You know, the heart pounding, I'm over the the toilet, I'm getting sick, and I'm really scared. Like, I don't want my parents to know I did this if I die, you know, that I was doing this. Like, this is horrible. They shouldn't have to know this. And there were a couple of instances like that that I just felt, you know, I'm not hanging around with some really great people. I'm not hanging around. (laughs) I'm not doing well at this point. Did it occur to you that you had a problem at that point? Yes. It did. Did it occur to you to go get help for that problem? So I tried many, many things before I came into AA. One of them was, and I like to read books. I love to read. So I read a lot of books on crystals, the healing power of crystals. Mm -hmm. There was also a lot of self-help books. So I thought that maybe if I charged my crystals a little bit longer in the sunlight... (laughs) that maybe I won't be as tempted, you know, because the, the, the drug dealer was so accommodating to like do a delivery service at work, mm-hmm. you know, but I'd also had him and other drug dealers in the past say, you're too smart for this, Sarah. You should go to <laughs> medical school or something. You, you're too interested in this kind of stuff or whatever. And I was noticing I just had a harder time stopping or staying stopped. And um, I was isolating. I didn't really hang out with people from school. Um, I didn't want to hang out with people from work as much, but I, I felt compelled. I didn't want to miss anything, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to feel a part of, even though in my mind, I still felt a very apart from and separate mm. from people in society. And my emotions ran much higher than, say, intellect. You know, they talk about our emotions running higher in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes we are reactive emotionally uh-huh. more than the intellect. And most people who are connected to God or that don't have a problem with alcohol have intellect over emotions. They have a little bit more control. Yeah. Well, maybe before COVID. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You were trying to deal with the problem through crystals, but self-knowledge, self-help, mm-hmm. intellectual approach. Yeah. One of the risks we run when we're doing that is we think that that's enough, even though our behavior is still con- continuing, yeah. we think that that's enough to quell it. Yeah. How did you feel about it when you were doing it? It was like a running experiment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was an experiment. And, like, there would be some weeks I could do it and other weeks, no. Uh-huh. Right before I stopped, I tried to go to AA. Uh, I went with another girlfriend and she had tried to commit suicide mm. and thankfully did not succeed. And I said to her, 
maybe you need to go to AA. Maybe this is a problem. What did you know about it that made you think that? Only I knew about it because of the person that said it to me when I was in treatment. Right. For the eating disorders. So I said, you know, maybe, maybe this is too much. Maybe you need to, you know. And so she started going to AA, and she invited me to come with her and told me, look for the similarities, not the differences. But I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to be one of mm -hmm. those, right? Because my, my idea was, you know, a bunch of old men who were probably 150 years old, <laughs> smoking tons of yeah. cigarettes. The room is full of smoke, one light bulb lit, very dark, and everybody's white-knuckling it, right? That was my my general idea of what AA was. And when I went, those people were nice, but I thought, no, I'm not them. I'm not that. I'm not that. But two months later, I decided, yeah, I am. So you saw the differences going in and none of the similarities. Had you been going steadily for two months before it finally hit you? I just went like a couple of times with her. That's it. And she was like, did you see any similarities? I was like, well, yeah, but you know, I mean, anybody could have that. You know, I wanted to justify and rationalize. So what was the turning point for you? It sounds kind of crazy. I'd really been isolating except for that one friend. And um, she was dating this guy that was also in the program. Mm -hmm. And he had a friend. And she said, you know, you need to talk to this guy. And we would go rollerblading mm -hmm. at uh, Memorial Park. And there used to be a section that you could rollerblade. It was a loop. And we would go and do like 12, 13 miles of rollerblading, like, you know, quite a bit. And... Um, I did not know he was in the program. He never mentioned it to me, but he would call me in the morning, like at eight or nine, do you want to go rollerblade? Mm -hmm. And I was still either coming down from drugs and alcohol or, mm -hmm. and so I said to him one day after I turned him down a third or fourth time that, you know what, I, I think I have a problem. And he said, I know a place where you can go. And he took me to the club. Wow. <laughs> and this has been my home group ever since then. Now that was probably around mid, late May. So and the funny part is, is I thought you actually had to be detoxed from alcohol before you could claim a desire chip. That's kind of funny. So it took me a couple of runs in May before <laughs> I picked up the desire chip. Hence, May 31st, because I like to procrastinate. <laughs> so you got your desire chip on May 31st. Mm -hmm. How long was it before you got a sponsor? It was about, I want to say, 60 days. Well, that's great. Yeah, because that was May. I think I got my first sponsor in like July. And I had her for a while. She was really great. And she had sponsored a lot of women. So she got all of those women at her house one day. And we all exchanged phone numbers. And I'm still in touch with two of them. So one lives out in the Woodlands area. And the other one lives in the Houston area close to the... And she still comes to this group as well. Right. So she's my litter mate. We're two weeks apart. That's amazing. So what were your first number of years like? Are there particular milestones within your tenure in Alcoholics Anonymous that you point to? Absolutely. My very first fourth step, it was pretty long and extensive. I put down, they told me to write everything, everything. down. So I brought this like small novel, mm -hmm. kind of the equivalent of all the, the Hobbit books <laughs> put together. Oh, <laughs> or the C.S. Lewis, you know, Lion, the Witch, and uh -huh. the Wardrobe. And um, we went through it. And that first sponsor was phenomenal. Hmm. Nothing made an eyebrow raise. Nothing. She just listened to what I said. She did not judge. And she said, is that everything? I think so. I'm pretty sure. I've really sat and thought about it. And yes, that was a pivotal moment because I felt like I actually belonged to AA. Like the slate is clear. I can start over here 
and this is my life. This is my new life. I want this. Yeah. I want to be a part of this. Yeah, nothing makes you feel more excluded from AA than mm-hmm. sitting in a room full of people who've done the fourth and fifth step and you haven't done it. <laughs> yeah, and you don't know what's going on. And I was so scared of it, you know, but really it's such a helpful yeah. tool. It really, really is. It's actually, I mean, I can't say it's my favorite step, but it's definitely an integral one because you have to have that that belief in God. You have to have that trust. You have to trust him to be able to show it to you. Now, the second time I had some pivotal aha moments was I think at about three years sober, my first sponsor had moved. I announced in a meeting that I would like another sponsor to go through the steps Mm -hmm. again. And I got another one. And I did step four with her going through the steps. And that was an incredible experience. I started to hear more of what the other one had planted the seed for, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I started to learn about you know, the victim mode and what my part really was. Like I heard so much more of it then like, wow. Okay. Then I could really do some work. Now we go deep. Now we dive in. Right. Did that get to any of the trauma issues for you? That helped in my personal experience. The fourth step doesn't always help with trauma, but it helped me to identify some stuff. Yeah. And then I went to therapy at year seven sober And that was like doing a whole different fourth step. Yeah. And I did a lot of EMDR work for some of the trauma. It is amazing. (laughs) And uh, someone saw me that I knew from the club. Mm -hmm. We were going to the 315 meetings. There was a core group of us during part of that time. And this is in maybe, I don't know, 99 or 2000. Mm -hmm. And he had gone to Austin for a year or so and come back and said, whoa, what is different about you? What has changed? And I was very sure that part of it was not just the steps, but also doing some of that work for trauma. Combine that kind of therapy with AA can make a big difference. I know it did for me, and I spent a lot of years with a good mental health therapist around a lot of the issues that I've had over the years as well. It's really important stuff. So you did your fourth step. You got through your fifth step. Sounds like you had a great sponsor at that time. When you got to your eighth and ninth step, what did you find at that particular juncture? Well, it was hard because I had stolen some stuff from my parents and I still had it. Thankfully, I didn't pawn it Mm -hmm. and I had to return it. And so it's interesting how God just kind of opens the path for us sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I sat my mom down, gave her some jewelry that I had stolen from Mm -hmm. her. And I'd also led her to believe that my brother took it. Yeah. So then I had to do an amends to him. And um, what was so powerful about all of it was, number one, I really underestimated my family's ability for forgiveness, and it brought us all closer together. Now, one of the amends I had to do was to my younger sister. I was not always nice to her. Mm -hmm. And when I had moved back in with my parents as an adult, and I was still drinking and using, I was quite jealous Mm -hmm. of how they treated her. She had a couple of autoimmune disorders, so she didn't have to work her way through school. She was just told to go to school. And so, you know, I I was a little jealous. And so I did my amends to her and I was very, very honest with her. And, but I do love you and all that stuff. And she didn't accept it very well. Mm. For 10 years, we were estranged and we were still very civil to each other. And there was a dynamic in the family. You could feel the tension, but no one else ever addressed it. Mm. And then when my brother had some issues, my sister came to me and made an amends to me. Wow. And we have been much closer. We're not best friends, but we're good friends. 
as sisters. And I was so grateful for that experience. That was very powerful when she came to me. And uh, we were able to help my brother together. And that's how many years into sobriety were you? I think I was about 10 years in, 10 years sober. So all this stuff is coming out. You did the original eighth and ninth step with your sister, and it was 10 years later that the healing came from it. Yeah. That's amazing. But tell me about some of the other milestones within your recovery that may not have been possible without AA or could be looked at as gifts. All the promises have come true. So one of the milestones was getting out of the bar. Mm -hmm. So um, I had tried getting other jobs and quitting working in the bar, but the money was pretty good. Yeah, I'll bet. Really. And so, and it was easy, fast money. And so um, I decided I was ready to get out. I had owed some money. I had gotten myself out of debt. I had put myself on a, on a um, budgeting program. I had learned to budget. And um, I was ready to get out. Mm -hmm. And I prayed about it to God. It was around an Easter service. Um, I think I was going to church. And they had a recovery service for people in recovery on Saturday evenings. And so I really wanted out. And I was really honest to God. I'm willing to take this action. Mm -hmm. I want the help. I'm ready. And um, a year later, I realized I'm out. I'm budgeting. Hmm. I have money in savings. I have a 401k. And that was all God. And I've never looked back. My spirituality went up just not being at a bar. I, was, I felt more willing to look people in the eye because I had really bad self-esteem. And uh, I was willing to look at more of my stuff. And it was around that time. That was at seven years sober, actually. So seven years sober, the trauma work getting out of the bar, just getting towards that. Now, at year 10, I'd gotten involved with a, a gentleman, uh -huh. and it didn't work out too well. And I had gotten myself back into debt helping him. So I was starting to see some codependency issues and some other things I needed to look at. But I was so angry, mm -hmm. not necessarily at him, but more at myself. And I sat in it for 18 months, and I had... Uh, another sponsor by then. So the other sponsor from year three, she had moved to the other side of town. So I got another sponsor. I would call her crying. She says, do you want to look at your part in it? Nope. <laughs> and I'd hang up bawling. It was interesting because when you're, when you've been sober at this point in the game, you know the work you need yeah, to do yeah. at this point, you know, <laughs> and I did not want to do it, but I could feel myself really suffering. Like, mm -hmm. I did not get sober at this point in the game to suffer. I want to be happy. I want to be happy, joyous, and free again. I'd already had a taste of it before. Why am I doing this to myself? So I was too embarrassed with that sponsor. So I got a different one. And um, I worked intensely with her. Hmm. And I did a lot of work. And that's still my same sponsor today. That's great. So you were able to overcome these difficult times by virtue of working the program that much harder. And then I met a guy that I eventually got married to. Hmm. And it was one of the better relationships I'd been in, um, probably one of the best. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were three years into that common law marriage, and he got cancer. Oh. And he did not survive it. Mm, sorry. And um, thanks to the program, I got through that without thinking, even contemplating that I would need a drink. I remember watching you when you were going through that, and you were just hanging on to your seat. That must have been a very difficult time. It was. I had never experienced the loss of someone so incredibly close to me 
and we were both personal trainers. We both enjoyed doing activities. Our vacations were centered around hiking and mountain biking mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. And um, someone pointed out to me, because people say lots of stuff to you when you've lost a, a spouse, not meaning well, yeah. but not always, they don't realize how it sounds, but someone said something to me that I thought was actually really beautiful. It, it took me a while to be able to absorb it because you just don't know what's going on for the first six, nine months of losing somebody. But she said, what a beautiful experience, Sarah. You were chosen to be for his end of life. Wow. And it, it took me a while to really appreciate that. Like God didn't take him away. He chose me to be for his end of life. And oh, wow. You know, that gave me goosebumps when I really kind of thought about it like that. Like, yeah, because I really loved that man. I'll bet. So, and I thought, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. What kind of questions did that have you asking of your sobriety and of your spiritual connectedness to God? So I really stayed very connected during a lot of the times of the struggle of taking care of him and working. Um So I was doing a lot. I was transitioning from being a personal trainer to working at a dermatology clinic as a medical assistant. Mm -hmm. So I would literally get up, train clients, go to the clinic, work at the clinic for an eight or nine hour day, and then uh, go train more clients, come home at 9.30 at night, take over from his mother, taking care of him, and stay with him until 11 or 12, Mm. talking to him. So you were married for three years, common law? Six and a half. Six and a half years. Mm-hmm. But three years in, he got the cancer? He got cancer. Mm-hmm. Wow. But the, the program, really, my spirituality with God was very, very close. I stayed very close to God. Mm-hmm. And even when I was questioning, what is your will? Mm-hmm. I just knew I had to keep trusting what he has in store. It was hard. Mm-hmm. And there were times even later down the road, like a year or two after, I'm like, what are you doing, God? Yeah. You know, and I had announced in a meeting one time that I was mad at God. And a gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, it, it shows that you have a very close relationship with God that you can say that you're mad at him. And I thought, that's pretty true. That's pretty spot on. You know, yeah. I never stay mad for long, though. So <laughs> That's beautiful to, to have that frame of mind. One of the things I've learned to say to people who are going through that kind of thing, and it, it makes sense to me, so I say it, and that is mm-hmm. there's a gift in here. Yeah. And the gift is that somewhere down the road, someone will hear your story and how you got through that death of a spouse without drinking and you stayed in the program and you survived to be who you are today. There's the gift, that person that you don't know now, somewhere down the road, that gift's going to be delivered to you. And uh, I've seen you help so many women and be so involved in the club and in AA in general and in this town that to me, somebody who had been negatively affected by that circumstance without AA probably never would have made it. I don't know. I can't even imagine my life without AA. Mm -hmm. I really can't. Mm. I, I don't know how I thought that being out there was fun. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy being in the program and surrounding myself with people who are sober and the things that we can talk about and laugh about. It's The fellowship is just amazing. It really, really is. It sounds to me like you were able to see the tragedy and the triumph, the gift in the situation that happened with your late husband. Yeah. It's made me a stronger person, definitely. Definitely. I'll bet. What was it like sponsoring women while you were going through that? 
It was interesting because God brings to us people that we need, I think, sometimes. <laughs> Seriously. So one of the first sponsees I got, mm-hmm. I didn't sponsor some people for a little bit, but I would do service work, chair meetings or help out at a, at a function. But I was approached by a woman after one of the meetings that you do, and um, she had recently lost her father. Oh, yeah. And she was also a cancer survivor. And um, that was one of the the people I sponsored that really made an impact on me Mm. because I had to practice what I preach with some of this stuff too, and make sure I'm actually on target too. I feel like these people, I can never give enough what I'm getting out of it when I'm working with them. So your well of experience gets deeper and deeper as time goes on. You're able to draw more from it. Yes. Must seem almost inexhaustible. (laughs) You know, right? You know, I really miss doing things like chairing meetings. My schedule slows down and work. My work is seasonal right. sometimes. So I'm looking forward to being able to offer up, like, I can do this day at this time if they need somebody. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really nice because I did a, a stint for six months at another club chairing. Yeah. And that was really fun because we just kind of went through the big book. We just started the foreword and we just started making our way through. Isn't that fun? It is really fun. I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like when you start off, this is going to take forever. And by the time you get done, you think, where did the time go? I really enjoyed it. At what point past the death of your husband, how, how much additional time in the program, working the program, working with sponsors and so forth, when did you get to the point at which you felt like that particular thing was resolved or you were able to move on from that? I want to say almost not as traumatic is the word. Seriously, because I felt, I even felt like my brain chemistry changed after someone I loved passed away. If that makes any sense. It's like, everything was different. My perspective about life is different. Um, You know, Houston's not known for very nice drivers or great in the grocery store. We're so nice to each other in the grocery store, but on the road, we're not that nice to each other. Mm. And things like that don't get to me Hmm. as much anymore. Uh, It's, just not enough to expend that energy. Mm-hmm. I want to put my energy now today over things that are going to make, I want to make good memories and enjoy life. I don't want to spend my life on something that's, am I going to remember it in two weeks? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. So I, I try to keep that in perspective. I really, really do. I mean, when my husband was still alive, if I got upset about something that was kind of I don't want to say super, yes, it would be superficial. He would point at where they took his kidney out (laughs) from the kidney cancer. And he'd point at the scar and I'm like, okay, right, you're right. Puts it into a really stark perspective, doesn't it? Yes. You know, and I've gone on many bike rides uh, by myself on some trails on the outer edges of Houston that are, you know, some of them are like little trails along the rivers that it's one of my favorite things to do with me and God hanging out on a trail. You like being out in nature, don't you? I love being out in nature. You're a hiker and a biker and (laughs) other great stuff. If we could have a gym with an open ceiling, that would be great. (laughs) And the irony is I'm so fair-skinned, I would probably get burned in five minutes. So. (laughs) Yeah, I am too. I have to always wear sunscreen whenever I go out. Me too. So um, in the last several years, can you point to any additional gifts that you've received by virtue of your being so involved in AA? Yeah. So some of those gifts have been not just like the fellowship and the friendships, um, but like one of those gifts is like the inner peace, the, I want to say character building, like Mm -hmm. doing those esteemable things to build character. Um, 
like all those promises that I used to read every day, the first nine Mm -hmm. months of sobriety, I would read all those promises every time I sat down in the chair. That was like my tradition, sit in the chair and read the promises. I think also that being able to look more at some of the core issues that I really have struggled with, maybe it's age, maybe it's starting to mellow out on me, Mm -hmm. or maybe I'm just too tired to deal with it in the sense of having to fight it every day, that my mind is not always my friend. And the gift of it is I can tell that side to be quiet. (laughs) I'm getting better and better at being able to do that. Um, It's not perfect. It's going to always be a battle for me. That's some progress, isn't it? Yes. But it's more peace of mind the more I give it to God and let Him do it. The beautiful thing I love about your story is that you are giving credit where credit is absolutely due. I mean, <laughs> the gratitude that you're expressing right now for yes. your higher power is is palpable. I mean, I can I can sense it. I can see it in your face. I know from listening to you share in meetings for so many years that you have developed this relationship that kind of transcends the day-to-day. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's taken a while to really establish that trust that it hasn't always mm-hmm. been easy. It's worth it, of course, is what we will sometimes tell tell people. It's not always easy, yeah. but it's worth it. Um, but I will fight for it. I will fight for it because I had nothing when I came in here. I was so emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. All the other types of esteem I was pursuing, whether it was shopping, drugs, alcohol, boys, you know, any of that work for maybe just a very small, short period of time, and then you're back to where you Mm. were before. This is much longer lasting, and it's much more fulfilling. And I just, I want to stay in that. I want to help give it to somebody else, you know. Um, You know, maybe in the future, we'll be able to download it. (laughs) Some sci-fi movie will be like, you can download your recovery, you know. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, too. We've obviously come through a period of time where we were all doing things electronically through Zoom. What was that period of time like for you? So I was not a Zoomer. You weren't? I was not. uh, I tried it a few times. It just wasn't my cup of tea. And it just so happened that there were a a couple of people that were hosting meetings where people were Mm -hmm. socially distant in their homes. So I actually went to more meetings than I typically do when I work. In people's homes during COVID? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was at one house three times a week, um, three mm-hmm. or four times a week. So, I mean, if I, you know, someone mentioned today in a meeting, you know, going to a meeting every day is a luxury. To me, it is because I don't yeah, always get to do yeah. that. But, you know, I try to hit three to four if I can. That's amazing. You, know? you can get through COVID without Zoom. There are a lot of people, though, I know that they would say Zoom is just not my thing. And, you know, I'd have to say, well, if it's between Zoom and no meeting, you know, that to me is a pretty clear choice. But the opportunity for you to be able to be with other people, even in the midst of it, what a gift that must have been. We kind of felt like we were being rogue alcoholics, you know, (laughs) meeting on the sly. (laughs) But we were all pretty careful. Did anybody get sick? No. So you got through COVID. And here we are in 2022, you're coming up on 26 years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. If the Sarah of today were able to go back and talk to the Sarah of yesteryear, which Sarah would you talk to? The 10-year-old, the 16, the 20-year-old? Who do you think you could talk to who you could have the biggest impact on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, 
any of them, actually. Uh-huh. Although I think the early Sarah, you know, the 90-day Sarah was probably still bouncing off the walls quite a bit. <laughs> um, but I was still willing to listen. Any one of them. I think the 10-year one, I would have said, get out of your pity pot, get off your butt and go, go do something. Mm-hmm. Go do more service work. You know, I think that time that I went through an 18-month kind of depression, you know, um, I struggled with some depression and because of the low self-esteem mm-hmm. and the anxiety. I've, you know, I know you've, I've talked to you about anxiety before, and uh, I've had to really work. I have to make a conscious choice. I'm turning this over to God. And doing that with the 10-year-old me, it would have been, it probably would have saved me a little bit, but it's what it took. It took those 18 months of me having that pity pot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I can look back now and go, what were you doing? So you don't think that Sarah would have listened to you anyway, huh? Maybe. One of the funny things during that time was I was, that was when Netflix, they sent you movies on DVD. Sure. Do you remember that? <laughs> I know, we're showing our age now. Anyway, um, I was mad at God and at myself. Mm-hmm. And the next movie that came in, I don't remember putting this on my list, but it was Conversations with God. <laughs> wow. I don't remember putting that on my list. So it was kind of funny. I was like, okay, if that's you, God, you have a funny sense of humor. That's not funny. Funny, not funny. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? God, that's amazing. So just little things like that. I've had small little experiences like that. I didn't have a burning bush, but I've always had some part of God showing me he's got his hand and stuff. Now, on a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, how would you rate your life today? Ah, it's an 11. (laughs) I can see that. And the the beautiful thing about you, Sarah, is I'm able to see the people who you influence. And to me, one of the best indicators of somebody else's serenity or spirituality or sobriety is seeing the impact that they're having on other people. And I see that all the time amongst the people who you circulate with, not only in this club, but you know, other places I've seen you. I've always appreciated everything that you've had to say while we've spent time in the meetings together. And is there anything else you'd like to say just in closing, a message that you'd like to leave for the world and posterity? Oh, wow. I want to say something really brilliant and prolific, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But just keep going. Keep going. Even if you're going through hell, Mm -hmm. keep going. Because that miracle will happen. That don't, don't quit five minutes before the miracle. So many times I've had that happen. Just keep going, keep your head up, keep trusting God, even when you don't want to just do it, you know? And of course I was told by the old timers, you know, go to a meeting when you want to, when you don't want to. And then at eight o'clock. Well, I love hearing what you share. You're just an inspiration to me in a lot of ways. And I love you and you're a beautiful person. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I always love hearing what you share in meetings. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Sarah M., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 
or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.